It's good to be with you here tonight, and it's my pleasure to introduce Rod. Um, I've done this on a number of occasions, and I'm just trying to think how I should do this tonight. But um, the reality is Rod and I came to Baylor about the same time, but independently. I didn't know that they were talking to Rod, and he didn't know they were talking to me. And um, when we both met each other here, it was kind of like love at first sight. And uh, we just decided that we'd start working together. And we've been having a lot of fun over the last five years. And uh, there's many stories I could tell you about him. I could tell you that he tried out for the Oakland Raiders and actually made the team for a while um, before, before he was cut. Um, but I won't do that. One of the interesting uh, stories that I will tell you is we were talking about the whole process of tenure and promotion. And I don't even remember how we got off on this subject. And so I asked him this question. He goes, well, I really wouldn't know. Because when I got my PhD, I was offered a full professorship with tenure. So um, Rod's never been without tenure. He's never been an associate or assistant professor. Um, he's just been cranking out books for a lot of years. And um, he has a new book, by the way, coming out in the fall he's, as he's wrapping up his next one in the next month or so and has the next two already kind of mapped out. But it's just been a blast to work with him. And uh, we, we uh, have all kinds of, of plots for things that we'd like to do in the near future. Banner's been very good to help us uh, get off to a good start. And you're really in for a treat. Help me welcome Rodney Stark. Yeah, we ought to put an act together. Hello. Yes, I can see. There, there's no light up here, and so I was just wondering whether I was going to have to wing the whole thing or not. Okay, everybody knows that early Christianity was the religion of the poor and the slaves and the downtrodden and the leftovers and the homeless. That's been the teaching all across the theological spectrum for many centuries. Then the Germans came along and said, well, you know, it wasn't just Christianity. All religious movements originate with the lower classes. Then an American named Niebuhr came along, and he said, all new religious movements are the child of an outcast minority taking its rise in the religious revolts of the poor. And from there, we very quickly got to something called deprivation theory. And this proposes that people adopt supernatural solutions to their material misery when direct action fails or is obviously impossible. And as some of us became a little bit more educated, which is a strange thing for social scientists to do, we began realizing that most, if not all, of the well-documented cases of new religious movements don't fit. Whether Buddhism in the 6th century or the New Age movement in the 21st, contrary to the prevailing social science dogmas, religious movements typically are launched by the privileged classes. I'll come back to why this occurs in a, in a little while. But what I want to do in the beginning 
is take another look at early Christianity and say, was Christianity the exception to this rule? Or is it the case that in the very beginning, Christianity was very attractive to people of privilege? Was it the case that Jesus himself may have come from wealth or at least from a comfortable background? That's the kind of heresy that I'm proposing tonight. Now let's go back to the irrefutable proof text in Paul, where he noted that not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. It's amazing how many generations of sophisticated people could read that and not spot an obvious implication. Finally, in 1960, the Australian scholar E.A. Judge began his illustrious career by pointing out that Paul did not say, none of you were powerful, none of you were of noble birth. He said, not many, which means some were. Well, if we given the time and the place and the minuscule fraction of Romans who were of noble birth, if there had been even one person of noble birth among the early Christians, that would have been remarkable. But apparently there were more. That raises the possibility that like other religious movements, Christianity began as a movement of the privileged. In fact, several historians had kind of noticed this even before Judge came along. The immensely influential German historian, 19th century, Adolf von Harnack, had remarked the special appeal of Christianity for upper-class women. And a Scottish classicist named Ramsey claimed that, quote, Christianity spread at first among the educated more rapidly than among the uneducated. Nowhere had it a stronger hold than in the household in the court of the emperor. So let's take a look. Let's go back and start with Jesus and see what we've got in early Christianity. Now, a lot of Bible scholars have been troubled by 2 Corinthians 8, 9, where Paul remarks, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Could this be true? Could Jesus have been a rich man? Now, most scholars avoid this problem by interpreting the, the verse metaphorically, claiming that the reference is to spiritual riches. But this interpretation is greatly compromised by the fact that the verse occurs within a context where Paul is asking the Corinthians to give money, not prayers, for the poor in Jerusalem. He also cites the example of the Macedonians as setting a standard for giving money and assures the Corinthians that God's blessings will accrue to generous givers. To cite the example of Jesus in this context strongly suggests that Paul was talking about Jesus giving up material, not spiritual riches. In an examination of what biography we have of Jesus in the New Testament, suggests that perhaps Paul may have known what he was talking about. First of all, it's very unlikely that Jesus was a carpenter. Only Mark 6, 3 refers to him as a carpenter. Matthew says he was the son of a carpenter, and everybody else kept their mouth shut. Nowhere in the New Testament is anything more said 
about Jesus' origins. But throughout the gospel, Jesus is referred to as rabbi or teacher, them being the same terms, and referring to someone trained in the law. It is worth knowing that there's a widespread Jewish uh, practice still goes on, but it was way, way back, way before Christ, in which a student of the law always had a trade by which he could live if bad times came. It's very inviting to suppose that Rabbi Jesus was a carpenter only in that sense. Alternatively, Geza Vermes claimed that the Talmud, quote, the Talmud sayings, the Aramaic make noun denoting carpenter or craftsman stands for scholar or learned man. Both possibilities seem to me more consistent with Jesus' knowledge of the law than is the idea that he spent his formative years sawing wood. In addition, it appears that his parents occupied a prominent place in their community, that they were sufficiently well off to have had property in Capernaum as well as in Nazareth, that they're able to go to Jerusalem every year for Passover, which is not something most families did. Consider, too, the immense number of analogies and metaphors used by Jesus in the gospel. Among them, only three times does he make any reference to building or construction, and these are so vague as to indicate nothing about his knowledge of carpentry. You don't have to be a carpenter to know it's better to build a foundation on rock rather than sand. On the other hand, Jesus constantly uses examples involving wealth. Land ownership, investment, borrowing, having servants and tenants, inheritance, and the like. These rhetorical tendencies may not reflect that Jesus was a son of privilege, but they surely do suggest a privileged audience. As the respected George Wesley Buchanan noted, many of Jesus' images and parables would be pointless if told to people who had not enough wealth to entertain guests, hire servants, be generous with their contributions. The audience, at least, was predominantly wealthy, and a teacher from the lower classes would have been less likely to have found his most attentive listeners among the upper classes than a teacher who himself had been reared in upper-class conditions." Unquote. And in fact, the Gospels are filled with clues that not only did Jesus address a privileged audience, but that he tended to draw his supporters from them. Consider the Twelve Apostles. We somehow assume they were all men of humble origins, fishermen. But when John and James abandoned their fishing boat to follow Jesus, and Mark tells us they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants. It's not surprising they employed servants. Fishing was a very profitable uh, operation and required a substantial investment. You owned boats. According to Luke, Peter and Andrew were partners of James and John, so maybe they had some affluence too. It's possible that Peter owned two houses, one in Bethsaida, another in Capernaum. Mark's mother owned a house in Jerusalem that was sufficiently large to serve as a house church. And then there was Matthew, the tax collector. Tax collectors were hated, but they were rich. 
Among the people mentioned in the Gospels as involved with Jesus, a number can be identified as wealthy, even upper class. Zacchaeus, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, Joanna was the wife of the steward of Herod. It goes on and on and on and on. Susanna, people who helped finance Jesus. And then in Matthew, we have this wonderful, wonderful happening. We learn that while Jesus was seated for dinner at the home of a leading Pharisee, quote, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and poured it on his head. Luke continues that when his disciples became indignant because it, quote, could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor, what does Jesus say? Why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. It should be noted, by the way, that the value of the ointment was approximately equal to a year's wages by the average worker at the time. To quote Buchanan once again, the majority of Jesus' teachings were directed to the upper economic class with whom Jesus associated, which supports the possibility that Jesus, too, may have been raised in an upper-class society. Now, lots of people, I'm sure many of you are already, will object that Jesus often advised that wealth was a barrier to salvation, that one should give one's wealth to the poor. Well, we could interpret that as a poor man's complaint against the rich, but it seems to me at least as plausible that these were the statements of someone in a position to say, do as I have done. Then, of course, we come to Paul and the post-crucifixion generation of Christians. According to the great A.D. Nock, Paul was from a family of wealth and standing. He was born a Roman citizen, when that was very uncommon, and a meaningful badge of distinction in the East. Not only he, but his father was a Pharisee. Paul left his home in the Greek city of Tarsus and went to Jerusalem in order to study under the famous Rabbi Gamaliel, and then rapidly became so prominent that he was appointed to punish the Jews who'd taken up Christianity. His training as a tent maker seems to me to have been in keeping with that long-standing tradition that every rabbi learn a trade. Now, of course, we know that sometimes later Paul appears to have actually practiced that trade from time to time. But the great C.H. Dodd says, yeah, but maybe it was an affectation. A man born to manual laborers does not speak self-consciously of laboring with his own hands. In addition, Paul didn't preach to the masses. He spoke, quote, to those who, like himself, spoke and read Greek and knew their Septuagint. He sought to interpret the mystery of God's purpose for the relative few who could comprehend such concepts. He moved easily among the upper reaches of provincial society. It should be no surprise, therefore, that Paul attracted many privileged followers, especially women. According to Gillian Cloak, quote, what is already evident is that women of the comfortably often merchant classes of the empire were well attested in the Christian movement from early on in its spread. It had substantial purchase among the classes of those capable of being patronesses to the apostles and their successors. And of course, as we know, one of these was Lydia, 
a wealthy dealer in purple. She was baptized by Paul along with her family and servants, and she subsequently conducted the congregation in Philippi from her home. Several times she sent funds to Paul to support his mission in Thessalonica. To a considerable extent, then, quote, Christianity was a movement sponsored by local patrons for their social dependence. In fact, when Paul arrived in a new city, he usually stayed in a wealthy household and conducted his mission from there. E.A. Judge identified 40 persons who sponsored Paul, and not surprising, all of them were persons of substance, members of a cultivated social elite. Hence, Erastus, the city treasurer in Corinth, assisted Paul, and he may have been one of his hosts. Another was Gaius, who had also, quote, had a house ample enough not only to put up Paul, but also to accommodate all the Christian groups in Corinth meeting together. The same is true of Crispus, who not only had high prestige in the Jewish community, but probably was well-to-do. There, of course, is Theophilus, to whom both Luke and Acts are dedicated, who is most likely a Roman official, and he probably subsidized Paul, perhaps during his long period of house arrest in Rome. Remarkable evidence of Paul's association with the privilege comes from E.A. Judge's calculation that of 91 individuals named in the New Testament in connection with Paul, a third have names indicating Roman citizenship. Judge called this a startlingly high proportion, 10 times higher than in a case of, of a control group that he picked out of uh, epigraphic documents. If this isn't enough, there already were significant numbers of Christians serving in the imperial household. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul writes, all the saints greet you, especially those in Caesar's household. In his letter to the Romans, he sends greetings to those who belong to the family of arrest. Aristobulus and to the family of Narcissus, and Harnack has traced both of these guys down. Narcissus was the private secretary of the emperor Claudius, and Astrolobus was an intimate of the emperor. Finally, there's the first epistle to Tim Timothy. Whether or not Paul actually wrote this is not very important. It was written about the same time, and it has Timothy engaged in a ministry in Ephesus. What is instructive is that the epistle offered so much advice about how to preach to the rich. As for the rich in this world, charge them not to be haughty. Timothy was advised to tell his rich members not to cease being wealthy, but to, go, to do good, to be rich in good deeds. And then he says, women should adorn themselves modestly and sensibly in seeming apparel, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire. Can you imagine going into a group of, of underclass, downtrodden Christian followers and telling the women not to wear gold or pearls or costly attire? That'll laugh you out of the place. I mean, that's nonsense. These people obviously could do what he was telling them not to do it. Did early Christianity attract lower-class converts? Of course. Even when a very wealthy household was baptized, the majority 
would have been servants and slaves. And surely some lower status people found their way into the church on their own. The point is not that early Christianity only recruited the privileged, but that they over-recruited the privileged. Then, of course, there's Ignatius. Year 110, Bishop of Antioch, he's arrested, he's sentenced to die in the arena, and he starts out walking to Rome with a dozen Roman soldiers. Took him many months to get there. He has many adventures along the way. But what's important is a letter that he wrote to the Christians in Rome because he had made up his mind to die in the arena. He had determined to be a martyr, and he was frightened that the Christians in Rome would get him off the hook, get him pardoned. So he writes, I am afraid that it is your love that will do me wrong. Let me state emphatically to you that I die willingly for God, provided you do not interfere. I beg you, do not show me unseasonable kindness. Suffer me to be the food of wild beasts. He's assuming that there are people in Rome, Christians, who could get him pardoned. Well, that wasn't just, you know, some little, little slave or servant who could do things like that. And as a matter of fact, many historians now agree that the Roman upper classes already by this time were filled with Christians. Uh, Marta Sorti suggests, a very, very good Italian early church historian, that there were Christians among the aristocracy in Rome as early as uh, before the year 50. And of course, it goes on and on and on. There's a, you, can, there's, you can draw a systematic sample of Romans of the senatorial class in the late third century, and Christians are overrepresented by far, far out of proportion to their numbers in the population. A study, a recent study, a very nice one, in our journal, by the way. We have an online journal uh, for studies in religion. This is by an Australian. He looked at grave monuments in Phrygia, and he found 14 Christian city councilors and the son of a Christian city councilor. A city councilor in those days was not an office you wanted. It was imposed on you. And you had to be enormously rich because you paid all the taxes. Basically, you built the roads. Uh, you expended an enormous fortune on the city. Uh, people tried to dodge it, but the fact is 14 Christians failed to dodge it. Not everyone was of noble birth, but some were, and it looks to me like there were probably more than we would think, that early Christians were not a bunch of miserable underdogs. That always should have been clear enough from reading the Gospels. Why and how were a bunch of illiterate ignoramuses producing sophisticated written scriptures at a time when only the Jews had anything comparable? Several of the Oriental faiths had brief scriptures, scriptures but the dominant Roman Greco-paganism had no scriptures at all. There's been a lot of recent scholarship exploring the enormous uh, literacy of, of Christians, but I'll leave that for the written version. 
What seems inescapable is that early Christianity was not an exception to the rule, that religious innovation is primarily the work of the privileged, but why? Let me set the stage. Consider that Buddha, who was a prince, that 55 of his first 60 converts were from the nobility, and we don't know who the other five were. The early Taoists, the early Confucianists, were recruited from the Chinese elite, and of course Moses was a prince. There were two small sects we know about in ancient Greeks, the Orphics and the Pythagoreans. According to Plato, they were both placed on the upper classes. It says, priests come to the doors of the rich and offer them a bundle of books. Now, it's, tr no, it's not true either that most, let alone all, of the Christian sect movements arose from the lower classes with the possible, and only the possible, exception of a few Anabaptist movements the great Christian religious movements that occurred through the centuries were very obviously based on persons of considerable wealth and power, on the nobility, the clergy, and well-to-do urbanites. For example, the Cathars enrolled a very high proportion of nobility. So did the early Waldensians. Luther's Reformation was not supported by the poor, but by princes, merchants, professors, and university students. At the outbreak of the first French War of Religion in 1562, it is estimated that 50% of the French nobility had embraced Calvinism, but very few peasants or poor had done so. A little study I did of 482 medieval ascetic Roman Catholic saints, three-fourths were from the nobility, 22% were from royalty. Many social scientists continue to cite the Methodists as a classic proletarian movement, seemingly ignorant of the fact that John Wesley and his colleagues did not depart from the church and found Methodism because they were lower-class dissidents seeking a more comforting faith. They were young men of privilege who set off on this voyage while students at Oxford. By the same token, the prophets of the Old Testament, according to the best Jewish scholars, all belonged to the landowning nobility. If they thrive, nearly all religious movements attract many lower-class adherents, as, of course, the Methodists did. But like the Methodists, the movements originate in the religious concerns of the privileged, not in lower-class dissatisfaction. Clearly, then, based on history, the correct generalization ought to be that religious movements are not revolts of the poor, but are spiritual ventures of the privileged. Recently, to the extent that it's been recognized, this fact has caused considerable anxiety among scholars. Why, they ask almost incredulously, would privileged people feel driven to form and embrace new religious movements? This has led to many confused and rigid and silly discussions of social scientific notions such as status inconsistency and cognitive dissonance. The reason the privilege turned to religion is neither very complex nor very convoluted. Having never been rich, let alone born into privilege, most scholars share with the majority of persons many unfounded illusions about what it's like to be the top of the social pyramid. 
Although popular adages abound, popular rhetoric abounds in adages minimizing the importance of wealth and status, most people don't really mean it. Their perceptions are clouded by envy as well as rampant materialism. Oh, to be born a Rockefeller. But that Lawrence Rockefeller has played an active role in founding and funding various new age groups, including Esalen, seems mystifying. But the fact is that wealth and power do not satisfy all human desires. As the Nobel laureate economist Robert William Fogle wrote, throughout history, freed of the need to work in order to satisfy their material needs, the rich have sought self-realization. Hence, Buddha could not find satisfactory purpose in meeting living in a palace that he appears to have founded under a banyan tree. Clearly, then, it's necessary to add a fundamental extension to deprivation theory as it was originally formulated. It is not merely that people will adopt supernatural solutions to their thwarted material desires, but that people will pursue or initiate supernatural solutions to their thwarted existential and moral desires, a situation to which the privileged are especially prone since they're not distracted by their immediate material needs. On top of which, the lower classes think, if only I was rich, everything would be fine. But the rich know that it isn't. Not only that, but the rich are in a position to act on their spiritual dissatisfactions and desires in a way the poor are not. They themselves have visibility, influence, experience, and means that the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel were both born into wealth and the priesthood gave them initial credibility. As he founded the Waldensians, Waldo, a rich merchant of Lyon, had the funds to commission a French translation of the Gospels and the experience needed to administer an ascetic movement that attracted many rich followers. John Wycliffe launched the Lollard movement without stirring from his rooms at Oxford. It was enough that he published an English translation of the Bible and proposed that the church pursue apostolic poverty. Merchants and members of the nobility took it from there. Jan Hus was the personal chaplain of the Queen of Bohemia and thus able to recruit followers from the nobility on a face-to-face -face basis. Martin Luther was a professor and so prominent in church affairs that he was sent to Rome to make appeals on the behalf of the Augustinian vicar general. Ulrich Zwingli's parents bought him a parish. During his youth in Neon, John Calvin enjoyed the sponsorship of the local nobleman, and while a student at Paris, he was assigned the income from seven, several ecclesiastical posts. And the University of Paris not only trained Calvin as a theologian, but perfected his skills, the skills that gave him the power to gain political uh, power in Geneva, from whence he mounted his religious campaigns. And by the way, uh, I had a wonderful time writing a long thing on, on Calvin that's everybody's overlooked. He ran an enormous string of secret agents that penetrated France and into 
the low countries and whatnot, surreptitiously organizing Calvinist sects. It's a wonderful story about how he trained these guys and sent them out. And how, I mean, it was, it was like the CIA big time. Finally, growing up in privilege often generates the conviction that one has the superior wisdom needed to transform the world and the right and perhaps even the duty to do so. So let me sum it up. Karl Marx was merely reflecting the conventional wisdom of the day when he wrote, religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the opium of the people. He might better have said, Religion often is the opiate of the dissatisfied upper classes, the sigh of wealthy creatures depressed by materialism. But of course, given his re relentless intellectual as well as personal materialism, Marx couldn't conceive of such a thing. Neither can far too many social scientists. Fortunately, most New Testament historians no longer believe that the early Christians were a motley crew of slaves and the downtrodden. Had that really been the case, if that's really who they were, then the rise of Christianity truly was a miracle. Thank you. Yes, and now for the roast. <laughs> One, two, it's on. Okay, if you'd like to ask a question, please come to the mic so we can all hear you. Now I can see people. That's okay with me. <laughs> This is somewhat extemporaneous. Um, this, this goes back to my uh, freshman sociology class in, um, at the University of Washington, Seattle, Kane Hall, uh, a little over 30 years ago, with a young professor by the name of Rodney Stark, yeah. uh, and uh, who at that point uh, presented some of his research on the origins of the Moonies, as yeah. I recall it. Uh, do the Moonies fit the pattern that you, uh, that you discuss, uh, well, uh, coming out of wealth and privilege? Moon was an electrical engineer. And his earliest followers, including the woman who, who came to America and, and started the, the first Moonies here, were college professors. Uh, now, that's not very upper class. And, you know, there's some question about whether college professors really count, but, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, it wasn't a bunch of guys from the docks in Seoul. Uh, these were, you know, these were f pretty sophisticated people. Uh, the first American converts that Miss Kim got weren't very, but the overwhelming bunch of Moonies, like, uh, you know, a few years later, were very, very, I mean, we're talking about uh, people who had really good degrees from really good places, for example, uh, from Johns Hopkins in physics and things like that. Um, so yeah, the, the Moonies do fit. You sat in that, one of the 800? Yes. 
I used to teach 800 kids at a shot. And, you know, my colleagues were so frightened by this. You know, and why does this lunatic do it? Trust me. It's the easiest, cleanest teaching in the university. You tap dance in, you give them their 49 minutes, you tap dance out. And the kid comes up and he said, I need to talk to you. And I said, this is about grades. And the kid says, yeah. And I say, I don't grade. <laughs> Can you think of a better answer than that? You know, see your teaching assistant. I don't grade. <laughs> John Deming from Seattle Pacific University. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to take a chance here on asking a question that it's not surprising that the names of the persons that are recorded in the epistles and such would be names that would be identified with the upper classes. Right. Because if I was one of the followers at that time and they put my name in there, nobody would have a clue who this person was. Right. And so it's not surprising at all. But. When Peter goes out into the streets of Jerusalem the day after at Pentecost, and, and he preaches, and it says there were 5,000 who, who okay. became Christians, were they all upper class, or was it a small minority of them who were upper class? They weren't converts. But they were after, if, if 5,000 did get baptized, okay? And that, the Bible does it, they did. What you had were 5,000 wet Jews and pagans. There had a long way to go before you could conceivably call them Christians. Mass, mass conversions simply don't happen. I mean, they may have gotten, it's perfectly reasonable that 5,000 people went and got baptized, but what were they afterwards? They didn't even know who Jesus was. Good music. And a follow-up is the last line of your talk was, now if that had been the case, that would have been a miracle. And so the obvious question is, was the rise of Christianity not a miracle? No, I don't think it was. Uh, I don't like to invoke, I mean, I have nothing against miracles. I think miracles happen, okay. But when I trace the rise of Christianity, what I'm trying to do is, can, can we get this job done without saying, as Harnack said, you know, Harnack says the, uh, the greatest miracle of all would have been for this to have occurred without miracles. But these guys are sitting there, and not only did the arithmetic of the plausible and the possible, they said, my goodness, in 260 years, you know, we come from maybe 1,000 people to uh, half the Roman Empire. This is impossible unless there are all kinds of miracles going on. No, it takes 3.4% conversion rate per year, which both the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons have been exceeding for years. Uh, and you'll get there. I mean, you start with 1,000 people in the year 40, and in the year three, uh, 350, you've got more than half of the population. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily mean that's the way they grew, but I'm saying that at a very plausible rate of growth, you get there uh, pretty easily. And, 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 and I'm perfectly willing, but you know, my job as a social scientist, whatever that is, is not to say, well, it was a miracle, let's all go home. My job is to, to work as hard as I can to see how far I can get without a miracle. And I f figured I got there Without them, now you could say that there are all kinds of miracles involved in, in the capacity of martyrs to, uh, to be martyrs. 
And, and I'm perfectly comfortable with things like that. Uh, and uh, I'm perfectly comfortable with, with miracles generally. But it just strikes me as uh, not very efficient uh, to make miraculous assumptions if you don't need to. That's all. Um, regarding the last question and uh, your reply, I don't think that we should discount the role of the Holy Spirit. So in my humble understanding, Christianity is a miracle because of the role of the Holy Spirit has played for over 2,000 years now. So I would humbly disagree with your statement. Now, we have also to remember that Jesus said that uh, uh, foxes have horns, but he doesn't have where to lay his hand. And my fear is that in, in your historical presentation, you take the assumption that church history starts with Augustine. In my reading of the church history, especially the Greek church fathers of the first three centuries, they always address the poor. And their main message of the first three centuries is addressing the poor. Uh, I didn't even get to Augustine. Um, you know, I'm, I'm talking about the, the first and second generation. And you can say what you want about the poor, but the, the content of the Gospels is very sophisticated. And, it, you know, you read these, these literate works, and you ask yourself, who was reading them? Who were they writing this for? You know, three or four guys writing back and forth to each other? It doesn't seem plausible to me. It seems to me... And, you know, by the way, you know, the, the German historians ruined us for, you know, a century with crazy notions like uh, that Paul wrote bad Greek. I guess it's when we were young, most of us heard that. He didn't write bad Greek. He wrote Jewish Greek. The same Greek that is the Septuagint. Well, he wasn't a Roman. He was a Jew. And what else kind of Greek did you expect him to write? But that it was ignorant? Absolutely not. It was very, very sophisticated. The Gospels are sophisticated. Um, I find that important. Uh, you know, we were talking about a very small group of people in the beginning. My estimate is that by the year 100, there are only about 7,000 Christians on earth. And for the Gospels to have any meaning, a substantial number of those people had to be literate. And there's, by the way, there's a, there were wonderful, wonderful four or five reasonably new books on Christian literacy. And, 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 and they're, they're, they're quite compelling and, uh, and very interesting. In effect, the Christians invented the book as opposed to the scroll, um, which I think is kind of interesting. You know, I mean... So I'll start by saying I have no particular concern with whether Christianity or religious movements in general are, are rich or, or poor. It's the evidence of, of sort of your argument that, that puzzles me a bit. And I'll start with the anecdote, and then I think it generalizes. You, you mentioned the sort of gold thing, saying you wouldn't go to the poor and say don't wear gold. But if you go to India and you walk into any poor community, what you find is the poor in India have lots of gold. Yes. They have tons of gold. So if you were at a church of the poorest of the poor in one of the poorest countries on earth, and it's all poor people, 
That line, don't adorn yourself with gold, would have immediate resonance with the poor in India. So it's not an argument that they must have been rich okay. because here they're talking about gold. And I think that generalizes to the general. I mean, your, your argument hinges on this. We can cherry pick off there's a lot of wealthy people in Christianity. And I have no qualm with that at all. I've, huh. I've no qualms at all that there's lots of them. But surely it's a percentage thing here. I mean, if I said, look, the average sports fan in America is highly educated because, look, I can give you a list of a thousand elites that watch sporting events. And so NASCAR is probably the most sophisticated sport in the world. Professional wrestling is incredible because, look, I've got a list of names. I think, you know, people are laughing. I mean, I think we would all say, you know, it's really a percentage thing that matters here. So what percentage of yeah, the Christians that's in any right. and I think are. I, and, and we don't have that number. No, we maybe not, this. but I think I've stressed the point again and again that, yes, there may have been a majority of people of the early Christians who were poor. I didn't say they only re recruited the, the rich. I said they over-recruited the rich and that the founders and the early important people were not a bunch of... Uh, Goofballs. And I guess it's if you want to say they over recruit the rich, that's when we need the percentage. You know? Yeah, that's if right. That's right. And that's and Christians are twelve that's, or fifteen. That's right. that and of course number, that's, I don't know how to interpret. Of course, that. that's what I'm doing my best to do. Um, you know, for criticizing me for for having limited sources, for sure there are really limited sources, and that's 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 the real problem for for biblical history, as a matter of fact. Uh, but uh, I'm not contrite. <laughs> well, I'm intrigued by the theory. Uh, I wonder, uh, can you extrapolate it to trickle-down theory? Trickle-down. Well, you know, it's a very funny thing. I'm right now, I wrote a book years ago called The Rise of Christianity. I wrote it when I didn't know anything about early Christianity. knew quite a bit about sociology, but... Uh, I'm rewriting the book now, making it about four times as long, starting sooner. I was very careful in that book. I started the year 40 so I didn't have to deal with Jesus, didn't have to deal with all kinds of things. You know, now I'm going back and doing it. But uh, what's really amazing is if you look at medieval Europe, the only religious people were the, 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 the upper classes and the... Uh, the upper middle classes in the cities, the peasants as a group, I mean, you get reports from all over again and again. They will not come to church under any circumstances. And if they do, you wish they hadn't because they are completely objectionable. They bring their dogs. The dogs bark. Uh, and you've got all these reports saying, I went out here. And, and at this county church, this church, they don't hold services anymore because nobody comes. Well, that's an interesting point. It means that they still haven't trickled down. Uh, you know, in 15, 16, huh? so when people, by the way, say, you know, Europeans have outgrown going to church. Hell, they never went. <laughs> it's true. You know, oh, the churches were always empty. You know, they look around and they say, boy, these people must have been religious because look at these big cathedrals. And my answer to that is, boy, they must have loved the nobility. Look at the big castles. And they all say, well, they ground those big castles out of the, you know, the faces of the poor. And they say they got the cathedrals the same way. I, I was going to say first with regards to the Holy Spirit, I 
as an economist, I think that that's unexplained variance. I could be wrong, but uh, <laughs> and I also I also think that equating education and wealth with wisdom is a little pompous, you know, to be. Not that I want to make it contrite. You know, but and remember, in a, remember in a time when nobody, almost no one, is educated, except rich people. Are educated people more moral? I don't see that. I didn't suggest that. Yeah, but you, you were suggesting that, that they had more wisdom, more spiritual wisdom, and that they had a... No, had, I said they had needs. In support, in support. Right. Uh, if you read Gross National Happiness, you know, Arthur Brooks, I right. think it supports what you're saying in the sense that all the research on happiness says, hey, until you get above a certain subsistence level, you know, you, you really... you. you you still get happier as you get more material things. Once you're above the subsistence level, there's no relationship between happiness and money. Right. And I think that's reinforcing what you're saying is when people get wealthier, then they, they, they're on a spiritual uh, search. But well, that's, yeah, yeah, that's what I am saying. Oh, so I think his book... Hey, no, I think it does, I think it does fit. Yeah. You see, one of, the, one of the things I think you just put your finger on that I goes on to push is that as long as you're poor, you can think that if you got money, it would be okay. Yeah. And then you're born rich. And you go sit under your banyan tree because, by golly, it didn't do the job for you. You were rich, and you were still unhappy. And you still, you know, you had all these existential anxieties hanging on you. And so you start a religious movement. Poor people can still hope for heaven on earth. But people who've got it know it isn't. And I think that's what the, what the big impulse is. I mean, that's what Fogel was really saying, is they've got the time and in many ways the need uh, for self-realization. And Well, yeah, not to go too far into that, but of course we all know people who have come from very, very poor circumstances who are in fact quite spiritual. And oh, yeah. And have great wisdom. Oh, sure. So, of course. Of course. So it, it's a, it, it can't be a sweeping generalization. Oh, no, but it's who starts movements. That's what I'm talking about, not who's religious. I, I'm, I'm quite intrigued now, wondering when, did the, when were the poor converted, by and large? Was it John Wesley in England? Was it... Uh, well, most places and times they weren't. Okay. They still aren't in Europe, okay? Okay. Uh, I think there's a, I don't know, there's a, a lot of Catholic piety among... Oh, well, by the way, Europe has always been... Europe is very interesting in the sense that before... Uh, before, as long as the church was illegitimate, they worked really hard at converting people. And the second that they were legitimated and, and made the, the state church... They were ruined in many respects. Uh, Northern Europe was never, ever proselytized the way that Southern Europe was. I mean, they got content to go in and baptize the king and, and three yeah. dukes and, and forget it, you know. And nobody ever told Hans and Lars that they were even Christians. And they, what they did is they added Jesus to along with all the other gods they invoked. Okay, okay. Well, I, I actually... But, but Southern, you're right, Southern, I, I Southern Europe. I know a little bit of the history of this from, uh, in connection with my Norwegian heritage. 
Um, you too. Uh, yeah, on my mother's side. Yeah, you know, there was a big revival movement about two centuries ago. Yeah. Uh, with, uh, uh, what's his name, Hans Nielsen Hauge. Yeah, the, the, the Hauge. Which did yeah. a great deal of bringing, yes. of, 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 uh, bringing a, a great spiritual depth, partic particularly to, to, uh, to impoverished people. And oh. that's, that's where all my mother's ancestors Oh, I know. But, but, but notice, it's not till the, the 1800s, yeah. it was mean, still there to be done. And that, I, mean, and I mean, you know, but the, I mean, because the, 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 the lower class Norwegians were pretty much unchurched until yeah. Hauge comes along. Yeah. Well, you know, that's almost a millennium after they were allegedly Christians. Definitely so. Well, then John, but that, that's what, so John Wesley in England did much the same. Yeah. I suppose, and, of course, and, one and of it, Methodists in this country. Yeah, of course, country one of the problems. Twenty-five percent of the U.S. population in the early 19th century, and that's yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, luckily, one of the one of the great results of religious competition. You, you people ought to like this. Uh, that uh, that the monopoly religions are lazy and ineffectual and don't get anybody to church. It's not until you get a bunch of. Of, of denominations or it's root hog or die that they get out there and they church people. Uh, and in the United States around 1776, best estimate is about 17% of people belong to a church. And that's been going up every decade since. And we figure off our Baylor survey of 2007 that we just broke the 70% mark. Well, that's a long, long climb. I don't know that you can do better than 70%, uh, particularly because people move enough so that they drop out of a church and by the time they get church again. By the way, all these fraudulent numbers out there about all these Americans who now say they have no religion, bad questions. And the people who also ask the bad questions know something they won't tell you, which is, you take that, whether it's 11% or 14% who say they have no religion, they have no follow-up questions, they say. But when you have follow-up questions, you discover some things like, yeah, about 3 to 4% of Americans are atheists. But the rest of the folks in that category who said they had no religion were really saying, I don't have a church, because they pray. And I'm sorry, if you pray, you're not irreligious. And if you say you believe in God, as they do, you're not irreligious. You may be unchurched. And a lot of these people are really saying, I, I don't have a church. And if you, if you push it a little bit, they'll say, oh, well, of course, of course I'm a Christian. Of course, the same people who are putting this stuff out 20 years ago put out the great report that all evangelical bodies lie about their membership. Why? Because they had, by the way, all this is a little three-question uh, filler study that they get all the phone guys to use because they're trying to find Jews, okay? So they ask you your religion, and then if you don't say Jewish, they ask, is anybody in the household of Jewish origins? And then that's the end of that interview, and then they take all the names, and, and, and they, they, they do their national Jewish service. It's a beautiful design. But these idiots were asking people their religion, and they said, about 20% of Americans are so irreligious, they call themselves Christians. They don't even have a denomination. Of course, they didn't ask him, by the way, uh, are you affiliated with any particular denomination? In which case, you'd have found all the evangelicals. They didn't know that a lot of evangelicals, when you ask them what they are, they'll say, I'm a Christian. They thought it meant, well, I'm vaguely something. 
Now they're vaguely, as a matter of fact, there are some. They're both the guys who do this. They're they're both British, and that's how much they know about American religion. They didn't know what Christian meant. I'm sorry. Uh, no problem. Um, just a real brief comment to return back to the early church and the gospels. Um, I'm perhaps more sympathetic to your discussion of the early church, thinking about the first Christians coming to the Feast of Pentecost, having to have an adequate income to make that trip there, and that conversion happens in Acts 2, and obviously the examples of Lydia and others. Um, I think the picture maybe is a little more complex when you think about first century Roman Palestine. People might raise some questions as to the offering of uh, Joseph and Mary. It seems to be uh, the kind of poor tithe offering we find in the Old Testament, and whether that tithe reflected uh, a rich background for Jesus' family. Um, and uh, I think I can see what you're saying, certainly about the support from uh, Peter's mother-in-law right. and others while the disciples traveled and ministered with Jesus for three years. I think someone like Craig Blomberg, who's a New Testament scholar familiar with economics, would be a good person that kind of fills in some of this right. context there. Right. It's, you know, it's, let's be honest. Why do I do any of this? Only because it's fun. I owe everything I am to hard work. I tried some once. (laughs) Decided never to do any more. And this, I've been privileged. I don't like universities, but I've been privileged that universities have been very kind about giving me endless amounts of time on my own to have an awful lot of fun. It's, it's, I hate to kind of confess it, but I'm just doing this for the fun of it. I'm going to follow my Italian heritage and impose my will on this organization in this meeting tonight. We're, we're at 9 o'clock, and uh, thanks to Rodney Starr for starting us in, on such a fine uh, presentation. I think the questions could keep going tonight, but uh, thank you so much for uh, start, uh, launching our conference in such a positive way.